Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, I have a question for you. How does it feel to be great? And how do you feel knowing you are touched with the lips of destiny? Oh my goodness. Well, I think it was kind of like downloaded into me by my mother or, or whatever you want to call it. It was ingrained into my operating system from birth. So the idea of greatness but i think greatness is really just uh i mean as our mothers taught us to be the servant of all if i've learned anything about leadership it's (laughs) genuinely that you just have to serve people that's it so do you feel uh, the question itself to be boring no no i I like the question i but the answer is you must be a servant (laughs) yeah I guess I made a note on that particular part of the book that we're doing today, which is This Side of Paradise, published in 1920 by F. Scott Fitzgerald. His first endeavor into uh, the novel, uh, apparently. So yeah, this was his first book. In my opinion, his greatest book. Yeah, okay. Well, that'll be interesting. I thought when I got when I came across that like section of the book where I can't remember which character, but somebody's asking somebody like, what's it like to be great? What's it like to be amazing? was an M... Or no, the, the Cardinal's asking at Amory that, right? Maybe. Anyway. The, I don't remember who does it. Yet. Well, I just kind of, it made me think like, how how the how the hell are you supposed to answer that question? The awkwardness of, um, I don't mean the specificity of the great. It's like, how do you talk about yourself in a question that's like so pointed and you kind of have a conflict of interest to talk about because you're like ruminating on the amazingness of yourself or the credibility well, of yourself. Well, you point to the people and the things and the ideas that got you to where you are, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, for example, I love what you say, right? That your mother gave you the Promethean flame. Yeah. Maybe to, different, to, to change the context a bit, I was thinking about, like, I mean, this wouldn't necessarily happen to me, but it's kind of happened a little bit where it's like, what's it like, what does it feel like to be really good at guitar? Right. And, and yeah, I just like... Good question, yeah. Well... For one thing, I'm not. But even if I like, let's say, okay, let's ask Jack White. What like, I just feel Jack White could think of better questions to ask him than what's it feel like to be great. He probably wouldn't ask that question (laughs) at all. Exactly. So I was kind of, I don't know, it was a weird thing that I was thinking about. So yes, anyway, we're doing the side of paradise. So I have a question for you, Luke. Oh, okay. This is your first read of this book, right? Mm -hmm. What was the underlying impression you were left with by it? Like, what was the Not not the uh, the thoughts, but was the feeling? Well, I think I appreciated reading this book because I think it contextualizes what Fitzgerald's work is more than when we just did The Great Gatsby. Because as you'll recall, when we did The Great Gatsby, I was uh, under a misapprehension of what the book itself was supposed to be communicating or yes. about. And so I was left feeling a little bit miffed. And then we talked about it. I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Fitzgerald isn't 
on the side of his characters. He's more like revealing them a little bit. Yes. Yes. And so with that kind of purview in this book, you see the the germinations of Great Gatsby in this side of paradise. Like I definitely see this kind of work as a continuum into that next book or that the his most famous book. I can see like the beginning seeds in this one for that one. And it made me th- honest so what I what it overall made me think is like okay, there was obviously something in the immediate post World War 1 culture and zeitgeist that was a little discontented and a little bit uncertain of what the next thing to do is and and like harboring in the idea of this type of individualism that's very much seems to be married to egoism and a narrow view of the self it seems to me by the end of this side of paradise the main character Amory Blaine is starting to see hasn't served him as well as he thought it was throughout the time well of course this side of paradise is just an autobiography yeah because yes Amory Blaine the main character is is F. Scott Fitzgerald well and he, 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 that's clear because he's like the same age as him well exactly <laughs> right like but not not exactly but like within the within like a five-year period I mean I think it was you that said on a previous podcast and if it wasn't I apologize my memory isn't perfect but uh I believe it was you who said all narrative is autobiography mm, that sounds like something I would say I, I yeah, definitely I definitely know that there's a famous line out there that um Everybody has one book in them because everybody knows at least one story, but real yeah. real authors are the ones who can write more than one book. Yes. And well, <laughs> as F. Scott Fitzgerald has proven, he's a real author. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. I think I liked this book more because I'd read The Great Gatsby. If this had been my first ever Fitzgerald novel, I would have probably been even more confused than <laughs> I was at the end of The Great Gatsby. Yeah. But because it's more contextualized, I felt like I had a better Rosetta Stone of yes. decrypting yes. it so i liked it i liked it i mean it's it's short i don't know if it's shorter but, than but you, you haven't told me what the feeling you yeah got right <laughs> okay so the feeling i got was uh this poor guy you're being a politician you're not answering my question yeah <laughs> my feeling was amory blaine is headed in a place where it's just gonna hurt oh yeah <laughs> so i felt bad for him that was my strongest feeling was I felt kind of a sympathy. I felt, a, I felt a sympathy for the main character because I, you know, I could see where his trajectory was taking him. Well, why is pain bad? Uh, well, I mean. <laughs> pain is how we learn. Yeah. I just, I don't know if every incident that happened to him was a necessary one for him to learn. Maybe some. It's hard to say. I, mean, I, I think we, we have to learn from everything that happens to us. Oh, for right? sure. This is something we talk about on the podcast a lot. So some people are constitutionally tempered to have to learn the hard way more than I'm definitely otherwise. One of people, <laughs> so I, I just, if you want to know what my feeling reading this book is, it's very much a kinship. Okay, I sensed that. Yes, yes. Well, it's one of my favorite books. Halfway sure. through the book, I definitely had the thought of, oh, I see why David wanted to do this one. <laughs> well, it's an important story, and the title is just amazing. This side of paradise. Yeah. Okay, so I just want to take a quick second to thank everyone who listens to this podcast. You can find us on all major podcasting apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon. We're on there now. And Ghana, if you're one of our dear listeners from India, or uh, even a couple from Pakistan. 
That's kind of cool. And it turns out Spotify now has a rating function. You can rate it out of five stars on Spotify. So if you feel so inclined to give a rating on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that would be great. Um, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook, Really True Fiction. We have a Facebook group. All right, so this side of paradise is a kind of the a coming of age story of this main character, Amory Blaine. Uh, before before you give the summary, I'd just like to say the 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 quote that means the most to me, and I brought this up in really true fiction a number of times. I have a note here of it. But the quote is, "It was always the becoming he dreamed of, never the being." Yeah, in the version I have, I read the uh, the Scriber Library, I guess published page seventeen. That quote is on. It's quite early in the book. Yes. So yeah, Amory Blaine is the protagonist, and it's a coming of age story of him growing up in kind of like northeastern USA during, I think he was born in like the 1890s or something like that. So he he was a young man during World War One, and honestly, it's mostly a book about his relationships to other people and himself. So there isn't like a lot of like plot beats so much as like. It's kind of similar, even though it's like over a much longer time span than Catcher in the Rye. It's similar to Catcher in the Rye in that a yeah, lot. I feel of... like it's very much in that vein. Yeah. It actually also reminds me of that movie. I don't think we've. I don't think we've done it. Well, there's three. There's Before Sunset, Before Midnight. Ah, oh, it's the Before trilogy. Yeah, there's yeah, three. Yeah. Of I know. Them. I know what you're talking about. I imagine Salinger was uh, influenced by Fitzgerald. Love Salinger, right? So Catcher in the Rye is only over like a couple days, and when we did that book, whereas this one is over like the lifespan of a young man. But yeah. it is similar in the sense that, like Catcher in the Rye, most of the book is him talking to different people about life and what he thinks and his in one sense grandiose but in another sense limited scope of his worldview which is probably the interesting tension in the book for us the reader well his worldview is very myopic Mm -hmm. a major part of all of that is his different interactions and relations with uh, potential love interests i think there's about four of them and just the kind of like subtle and unique ways that it doesn't work out with all four of them (laughs) for um, idiosyncratic reasons that all are a little bit underlined by some of the same things in Amory. It's so human. Yeah, in Amory's way. One of the main things of the book is his kind of puzzlement throughout the book as to why he's not satisfied with the things going on in his life and the inauthentic interactions he has with a lot of the Princeton type people he spends his time around. And then how he experiences um, people around him dying at a young age. Tiny little sidebar. There have been a handful of people in my life who have died who are around my age. Like a couple people from my grad class. And, you know, just people that I've known throughout the years. Or even like a, let's say like a cancer diagnosis from someone who's pretty young, right? But like, I was thinking about this. The World War I generation would have known thousands of people their age who died. Like yeah. just how that might have affected that post World War One generation a little bit more, <laughs> you know. That's the Roaring Twenties, and I think Freud noted how close Eros and Thanatos are in relationship no, to yeah, each other. Which right? You and I talked about before, and I that was a huge insight you gave me. So I noticed that too a little bit in this book is the um, not recklessness per se, but the aban- Like there is a little bit of a re- reckless abandon in the after the world war after the war type of element of this book because i think part of it is just like 
you know, young people aren't accustomed to that level of peer death, let's say. Yeah. Well, it's it's traumatic to encounter more mortality, right? Yeah, well, for sure. It's traumatic at any point. But like when there's that percentage of young people from the war and then obviously the Spanish flu right after the Spanish flu was interestingly and devastatingly terrible for people in their 20s and 30s, right? So there was like a good, you know, there's like a five or six year span of time where people you know, 18 to 40 are just dying at record numbers, like never before, especially men. I'd never really thought about that before. Like, what would that what would it do to me if 30 to 40 percent of my peers throughout my life were just dying in a five year span? Right. Well, I think I think that's about to start happening a lot, to be honest. I mean, maybe not to us, maybe not in this country, but five percent of the world's calories are grown in the Ukraine. Right. Right. And they're not being planted this year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So whether it's um, whether it's us. So you're predicting or, some starvation in the well, of course in the near future. Not going to be any other way. Yeah. yeah, it's just math, right? If you're not growing five percent of the world's calories, then you're not going to feed five percent of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, scarcity and privation has been one of the chief motivators of everything in human life, and so it's been a while since the western countries have had to face that and so i don't think the western countries gonna have to face it as much but i think we're gonna have to face the repercussions of what happened yeah around the world so the book itself is actually it's not not a plot driven a plot driven book it's a character driven book well as is life yes so this side of paradise this was your recommendation and i'm it's really interesting but so yeah i'd want like i have a couple notes but i want you to lay the table of why you like this book, what you think about it, and why it impacts you so much. Well, it's not even actually very complicated, but it is a coming-of-age <laughs> story of a young man. Yeah. Right? It is a young man coming to the realization that he's not the most important thing in the world. Mm. And that's kind of the revelation he has at the end. That It's, it's like we've talked about from uh, This is Water, right? Where it's yeah. like he realizes that he's swimming in water. That's really what this book is about, is about realizing that, oh, I'm not the most important thing in the world, even though, like, he's a narcissist for all intents and purposes at the beginning and the middle, but he's not at the end. Mm -hmm. And I think that's it. This book gives me hope that there can be evolution, development, personal growth. Well, I think he is a narcissist, but I'd add also he's an egoist as well. Okay, go into that. Dig dig into that. A slightly different distinction. To me, narcissism has the overlay of like conscious arrogance or, or unconscious arrogance. There's an element of superiority to narcissism that is necessary. Like I'm actually better than other people. Whereas egoism is more like I am actually incapable of comprehending other people <laughs> like or like yes. I'm, I'm actually constitutionally uh incapable of understanding that there are other people <laughs> right kind of thing so it's a it's a slight difference in valence of maybe social ethics we would say right like i think narcissists have a kind of preening element to their personality and, ah, and right like good they're, point. they're kind of like showing off to the world whereas the egoist doesn't even notice the rest of the world because of how 
myopic you say they are and i think he's both like i do think there are some scenes where it's clear he's like showing off plus the great thing about life is is and characters right is that you're never just one thing yeah, you're yeah. A, you, you contain multitudes yeah and i think if you're a narcissist you're also an egoist but i think you could be an egoist without being a narcissist if that makes sense yes yes i think that's fair so that would be I'm... my notice of of amory right i like that yeah, he's definitely, I mean, I guess the reason that I like this book so much is I read it in my early 20s. Mm -hmm. I think I was 22, but don't quote me on that. It was some in the range of like Not 21 to 25, right? Right. And it just felt like the most me-like book that I'd read at that time. And that's what I love about books, right? Is that when you read them, and if you can feel the feelings that are being conveyed in them, mm -hmm. I mean, you and I've talked about this so many times, it's the same with music. It's it's communicating a message underneath reason. Mm -hmm. And yet it can be used to further develop the beauty of reason. Right. Right. And I guess this is just another example of the most significant thing in my life, which is just the revelation that comes from well-crafted narrative that makes you feel something. Mm -hmm. And in the case of, it's not narrative so much as description, observation, right? In this particular book, it's the same as um, T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of Sir Alfred J. Prufrock. It's the reflection of a young man on the absurdity of existence to a degree, but also the hope in that existence. Yeah. And the, it's the existentialism you're always talking about. It's finding meaning, what, what is meaning? Right. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like this was a great reflection on the journey of a young man to trying to discover meaning. And, and that's why I loved it so much. And I think especially there's the one love scene uh, where he meets the girl in the, in the haystack and they're up on top of the haystack and he just falls in love with her. And and it wasn't meant to be, but there was love. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think like what is a more human experience especially as a young man, but I'm sure as a young woman too, what is a more human experience than that scene? There isn't one. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately the purpose of existence is reproduction. Well, the evolutionary one. Yeah, yeah that's what I mean. The evolutionary purpose of existence is reproduction. Mm -hmm. So the, a reflection on that from a philosophic perspective, but also an art perspective. And, a, and like there's that beautiful scene where he meets that girl that he falls like head over heels in love with. And then it moves, literally the narrative moves from, you know, whatever it was. I think it's, I don't remember the exact narrative structure, but it moves to a play. Yeah. And that is art. That is art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. That scene in the haystack was fun. Because it does, it does remind me a little bit of being younger, I think, than Amory is in the scenes. But like, I have this memory of the first time I ever held a girl's hand at a Dutch Harbor Christian camp. Uh, when I was 13 and of course, uh, you know, I got a talking to, but <laughs> that's a little bit yeah. secondary. <laughs> of course, of course. But yeah, that, that kind of rush, that rush feeling of- It's just a human thing. Of early blooming romantic thoughts and feelings. It's beautiful. Kind of yeah. I mean, that's one of the, 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 the key meaning. One of my best friends just met the woman he's going to marry. He just knows, mm. right? It's just yeah. like, that's good. it's done. He just met her yesterday. And- <laughs> I knows, right? And it's funny because everyone says that, right? They're like, well, you just know. Right. And it's like, it's such an absurd thing to say that none of us believe it. But everyone who has it happens 
to them, they all say the same thing. So what does that mean? So what is that? What is the book saying then when these feelings that Amory has, they don't work out? Well, he didn't know. Oh, so you think that the scene in the haystack, he knew but didn't know? Well, I think it's one of those subconscious things where like, if he had known she was the one to be with, then he would have made it work. Like it's one of those things is that action provides clarity, right? You get to choose. It's the same thing from the East of Eden, right? It's like, it's about choice. Yeah. Whereas a lot of this book feels like it's Amory's passivity. That is. Yeah. Well, it's the, his passivity and his also kryptonite. his arrogance in his, he believes in his own greatness. And that is the core, that's his, that's his core belief, right? That's his first principle. If you're, let's say philosophic if if you're constituted to be a philosophical idealist which amory is which is like the thought is the the construction of the mind is more real than the reality around you yes exactly you don't need to do anything you don't need to have any action to bring about the thing that is going to happen because the thing that is going to happen is actually is actually weaved into the fabric of metaphysical reality oh, anyway space time. Exactly. <laughs> right? this is what the philosopher alfred white northhead called all of western philosophy being a footnote to plato and of course <laughs> plato's idealism is. right there's, there's no and, question and you and it's like a book like this is just another of th- probably tens of thousands of examples of some sort of cultural artifact from the west that's paying homage to Plato. <laughs> you know, well, like, the, 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 the whole West is based on the marriage between Athens and Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. That's the whole story. Yeah. And I mean, like, this would be a different podcast. I would argue that Athens is actually successful to the extent that it has combated against that side of Plato. Well, there's a tension for sure. Yeah, obviously, Socrates. There's a whole realm of scholarship around, like, what of Socrates was Socrates and what of Socrates was Plato because like Plato was a student of Socrates. The scholarship is around like how much the early dialogues seem very tonally different. And like true philosophy, in my opinion, is understanding that early Socrates has a different tone than later Socrates. And that's interesting because the ideas are slightly different. So why don't we jump in with that quote? Always the becoming, never the being. Because you did actually say that in, I think it was the Great Gatsby episode, and maybe a couple. I brought this quote up probably a dozen or more times. It was always the becoming he dreamed of, never the being. What does that line mean to you? Well, so I've been reading this book called Neurosis and Human Growth by Karen Horney. Okay, she's a psychologist, obviously. This is uh, one of the main texts that inspired Jordan Peterson. Mm. But I've been reading about the search for glory, and that's what Amory is doing. Right, as he's seeking glory, but he's not even seeking it. Like you said, he's passively believing it's going to come to him. Mm-hmm. And and the becoming that he's dreaming of is the achieving of glory. Right. I'm going to read this passage because I think it's really just important. It goes like this. Finally, the compulsive nature of a drive shows in the reaction to its frustration. The greater its subjective importance, the more impelling is the need to attain its goal. And hence, the more intense the reaction to frustration. These constitute one of the ways in which we can measure the intensity of a drive. Although this is not always plainly visible, the search for glory is a most powerful drive. It can be like a demonical obsession, almost like a monster swallowing up the individual who has created it. And so the reaction to frustration must be severe. 
They are indicated by the terror of doom and disgrace that for many people is spelled in the idea of failure. A reaction of panic, depression, despair, rage at self and others to what is conceived as failure are frequent and entirely out of proportion to the actual importance of the occasion. The phobia of falling from heights is a frequent expression of the dread of falling from the height of illusionary grandeur. Consider the dream of a patient who has a phobia about heights. It occurred at a time when he had begun to doubt his established belief of unquestioned superiority. In the dream, he was at the top of a mountain, but in danger of falling and was clinging desperately to the ridge of the peak. I cannot get any higher than I am, he said. So all I have to do in life is to hold on to it. Consciously, he referred to his social status, but in a deeper sense, this, I cannot get any higher, also held true for his illusion about himself. He could not get higher than having, in his mind, a godlike omnipotence and cosmic significance. <laughs> okay, so in your own words, how does that relate to the line, always the becoming he dreamed of, never the being? So the becoming is a search for the search for glory. Yeah, okay. Right? I'm going to just have to read another one. You're just going to have to. <laughs> uh, but this is like absolutely key. So you know that I have tended to, in my life, seek vengeance. Mm. Right. This is a right. this is a theme of who I am, right? So the search for glory. Its chief aim is to put others to shame or defeat them through one's very success, or to attain the power by rising to prominence, to inflict suffering upon them, mostly of a humiliating kind. On the other hand, the drive for excelling may be relegated to fantasy, the need for a vindictive triumph then manifests itself mainly in often irresistible, mostly unconscious impulses to frustrate, outwit, or defeat others in personal relations. I call this drive vindictive because the motivating force stems from impulses to take revenge for humiliation suffered in childhood, impulses which are reinforced during the later neurotic development. The later uh, accretion probably are responsible for the way in which the need for a vindictive triumph eventually becomes a regular ingredient in the search for glory. And we see this all throughout this side of paradise, right? Is he's always trying to get the better of everyone around him. Mm-hmm. Why? Because for, and I can't, I couldn't put my finger on it when I was reading it, but at some point, and maybe you can, because you've also read it, at some point, he felt humiliated. Mm-hmm. And his response to that humiliation was a vindictiveness, a vindictiveness that would put others down and humiliate them. It is eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Well, I think probably it happens earlier than this in the book a few times, but the easiest example is one very much reminiscent of, of real life. And it's when he kind of realizes that he's more educated than other people around him who have better jobs than he has. Yes. And that is a very frustrating (laughs) thing. Yes. Yes. I've been there. I've been there many times. You have too. Uh, Again, we've talked about how resentment isn't a sexy term to talk about in public life because it's one of the most nasty impulses that humans have. But ambient resentment, and this is not new. This isn't just now. Like, there's talks about this from, like, with the rise of the merchant class in, you know, Enlightenment Scotland and and even back in Athens when this happened. Like, 
a lot of the kind of like what we might call the elite class now, but you know, like noble lords or petty mid-level royals or nobles in, in the Middle Ages, and especially during the Enlightenment, like these people just got so butthurt at the people who didn't need their help to sell wares, didn't need their help or more importantly, their permission to go trade with other people. Yeah. Because a lot of times... Okay, maybe this will take a second, but I want to lay an important philosophical distinction that I think animates a lot of this realm of life. And as you know, I have started, there's a new podcast I do called The Liberal Soul. And I didn't do an episode on this, but I thought of doing one. And just uh, to clarify for listeners who may not know, he's not talking about liberalism in the more, you know, base term. He's talking about in the enlightened, in, in the reality, the the substantive reality of the word is liberty. Well, liberal is um, a term that far predates progressivism. In I'm just, I'm just, some people don't know that. Yeah, illiberalism knows no political aisle. It knows all political aisles. Right? Exactly. exactly. So there's this uh, really great 20th century liberal philosopher named Isaiah Berlin who repopularized a fable, I guess, maybe from Aeschylus. I think it is in ancient Greece. Anyway, it's the fox and the hedgehog. And the the line is that the fox knows many things and the hedgehog knows but one big thing, demarcation. And he was actually writing about it. I didn't know this until I read the uh, essay. He was actually writing about Tolstoy. Oh. He said Tolstoy was a fox who wanted to be a hedgehog. That was his. Like, <laughs> he desperately <laughs> wanted to be a hedgehog. He, he, he was well, a, Kierkegaard said purity of heart is the will one thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so Kierkegaard was definitely a hedgehog. <laughs> no, there's no question. You know, this is not really relevant, but it's it's an interesting essay because Berlin defends the claim that Tolstoy wanted to be a hedgehog, but he couldn't quite bring himself to be one because of he was too much of a fox. So yeah. Well, it's fair. You are a <laughs> Yeah. So I think as applied to this side of paradise, Amory is very much a hedgehog because all of his interactions with other people are... They're all filtered through himself. Yeah, they're siphoned and funneled into a kind of bottom line that he tries to articulate but can't quite because it's like it escapes him a little bit but it it's all funneled into how it will advance him how it will make him great right like how will every of these one of these relationships that he comes across every individual person that he talks to is chalked up into the egoistic life narrative that he is spinning for himself let's say with that point i made about how he's more educated with people with better jobs part of what has made let's say the merchant class throughout history um, very successful is their ability to be foxes is their ability to like individualize every transaction and not have to worry if all of their shipments on their boat to transport from one from harbor a to harbor b fit into a grand philosophical life narrative, right? Like that doesn't actually really get the job done for them. And so I think that a number of, let's say, hedgehog types are annoyed with fox types because of ambient worldly success, because you don't actually need a grand life narrative to make a lot of money in a capitalist system, for one thing, right? That's a very specific yes. example of that kind yes. of thing. And so resentment or, you know, what we might modernly call in a different, slightly different way, being butthurt about that kind of thing is because, well, you know, uh, an academic hedgehog type might say, 
I've put all of this work and effort into studying the classics, the greats, thinking about the sweeps of history, the grand clashes of historicism, yes, of, and, civilization. of civilization. And I don't make as much money. I don't have as nice of a car. And I don't have as nice of a house as a guy who fixes toilets. Right? And women and <laughs> women don't even like this is Amory's problem, right? As he's like, he falls in love all the time, but he can't make love work. Yeah, no, and I, I just want to point out too for clarification is that Berlin makes the point that he doesn't claim being a hedgehog is inherently worse than being a fox. Uh, he just claims that, well, his strongest claim was about Tolstoy, but he was also just kind of saying that he's a fox, but he knows hedgehogs that are able to kind of maybe do what Amory does near the end, which is like integrate it better into their lives and not let it eat them up. Uh, and, you know, there's like Jungian philosophy and all of that of in integrating your shadow and all that kind of stuff. So, so like, that's all interesting. He doesn't, he doesn't come down too moralistically on one side or the other, but the fox or the hedgehog, he merely points out these kind of tendencies in the personality traits. And so what Amory is struggling with in a lot of the book is noticing as all humans have to of how reality doesn't always conform to our thoughts <laughs> and in fact oh. very often doesn't in fact, it almost never does i actually just talked to a guy a friend from korea named christian about free will on the liberal soul and we talked about he was talking about philosophical idealism and how a large swath of american culture and we see it a lot in the self-help movement american culture is very much dominated by that kind of american form of philosophical idealism which is like well i mean Peter Thiel talks right? about this in zero to one right he says it's it's optimism but it's it's optimism without direction it's directionless optimism yeah that's a good way of putting it it's indefinite optimism Whereas China is suffering from definite <laughs> pessimism. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. And the re what you really want is definite optimism. Which is why I think America was a ripe field for pragmatism. Like, oh, yes. Of course it's going to be this indefinite optimism that because pragmatism is definite optimism well t okay so there's an actually there's a there's a good analogy here in physics because it's the difference between speed and velocity so speed is the measure of how fast you're moving but velocity is the speed of how fast you're moving and the direction you're moving in oh i like that go go, go further on that go further well, just, on that. just velocity is more it's literally more direction oriented <laughs> right like it right. actually gives you a you can be traveling uh, your speed is let's say 50 kilometers an hour but your velocity is 50 kilometers an hour heading northwest right, right? so yes. it, it, it includes direction it direction includes and it includes the terrain it includes the terrain Right. right. It includes the part of the world outside of you. Yes. And so obviously in physics, you need to include the part of the physical reality outside of you. That's like almost the definition of physics. Yeah. <laughs> no. And so I think in a not perfectly analogous, but pretty good, I think pragmatism adds direction to optimism. That's my claim. I, when I read William James, I read someone who just shrugs at all of the problems Amory's talking about and saying, yeah, okay, but what about this thing? Like, are you trying to do this? What are you, well, can you, what are you trying to do? Can you share a bit of maybe three lines from William James that you see as the shrug to Amory's questions? Or even one quote. Just give me one. So I did an episode on on uh, pragmatism, like the just general pragmatism William James talks about. And he gives this great little vignette about he was on a camping or he was on a hiking trip. He was with what he called metaphysicians. <laughs> and they were yes, worried about yes. like, if, you, if, if there's a squirrel on a tree and 
you are moving around this, like you are walking around the tree and the squirrel is moving around the tree that you never see the squirrel. Can it be said that the squirrel is going around the tree or not? Right. <laughs> if you never see it. Yeah. And William yeah. James says, well, it just depends what you mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you mean the squirrel moves around the tree in relation to you, the observer? Well, then no. But if you no. if you mean it as opposed to a third party like direction like north south east west then yes so what do you mean <laughs> right and, I like this. and pragmatism I like in my opinion pragmatism is the hot knife through metaphysical butter of like well okay that question isn't actually contextualized yet what do you mean by that yes, <laughs> puts the onus amazing. back on the question asker which is different than just thinking the world will be this outside in my mind. It brings it back to reality. I got to read you one more quote to that very point from the same book. I recommend everyone get it. Neurosis and Human Growth by Karen Horney. But there's one last quote. Let me just grab it here. Because the neurotic, as long as he must adhere to his illusions about himself, cannot recognize limitations, the search for glory goes into the unlimited. Because the main goal is to the attainment of glory, he becomes uninterested in the process of learning, of doing or of gaining step by step, indeed tends to scorn it. He does not want to climb a mountain. He wants to be on the peak. Hence, he loses the sense of what evolution or growth means, even though he may talk about it. Because finally, the creation of the idealized self is possible only at the expense of truth about himself. Its actualization requires further distortions of the truth. Imagination, imagination being a willing servant to this end. Thereby, to a greater or lesser extent, he loses in the process his interest in truth and the sense for what is true or not true. A loss that, among other accounts, for his difficulty in distinguishing between genuine feelings, beliefs, striving, and their artificial equivalents, unconscious pretenses in himself and in others. The emphasis shifts from being to appearing. Mm -hmm. That's perfect because I actually had, I made a note of the scene where he's wearing a hat out and then he notices that no one else out in the public social event that he's in is wearing a hat. So he runs home and takes it off. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> he's actually deep down quite a conformist no, to the 100%. expectations of the, at least, at least the class of people he presumes to be the ones that will engineer his rise or part be part of engineering his rise. So it is that interesting kind of dichotomy between him believing in his greatness, but also being like in a very base way anxious about how he That's appears to other he people. actually believe in it. Good point. But, you know, it's still pretty early in the book. So we, let's say it's our first read through. We don't know that per se. So it's like an interesting right. element of his insecurity. Like oh, that yeah. that scene betrays that insecurity. Oh, 100%. So I really liked that narrative element in it. But what I like is the Cardinal sees greatness in him, mm -hmm. but he like he tries to teach him that this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. And Amory just doesn't get it. Sure. And, and actually, so one of the main kind of motifs of the book is this uh, distinction between personality and personage. Yeah, do you want to dive into that for the listener? Because you're going to be better articulating. I'm going to read the. I'm going to read the paragraph. Yeah, yeah, please of do, the please book do. that it yeah, is, yeah, yeah. and I then know. we can chat about it. Because honestly, I don't know if I totally understand it. <laughs> so I'm excited well, to see. You never totally understand anything. 
Well, okay, but I I want to I guess I want you to inspire thoughts in me. There we go. Okay. Soon. So I think it's on page 104 in my book. So this is Amory talking to a cardinal. The cardinal speaking first. We have to do it because we're not personalities, but personages. That's a good line. What do you mean? A personality is what you thought you were. What this Carrie and Sloan you tell me of evidently are. Personality is a physical matter almost entirely. It lowers the people it acts on. I've seen it vanish in a long sickness. But while a personality is active, it overrides the next thing. Now, a personage, on the other hand, gathers. He is never thought of apart from what he's done. He's a bar on which a thousand things have been hung, glittering things sometimes, as ours are, but he uses those things with a cold mentality back of them. And several of my most glittering possessions had fallen off when I needed them, Amory continued, the simile eagerly. Yes, that's it. And when you feel that your garnered prestige and talents and all that are hung out, you need never bother about anybody. You can cope with them without difficulty. But on the other hand, if I haven't my possessions, I'm helpless. Absolutely. That's certainly an idea. Now you've a clean start. A start carrier Sloan can constitutionally never have. You brushed three or four ornaments down and in a fit of pique, knocked off the rest of them. The next thing is to collect some new ones, and the farther you look ahead in the collecting, the better. But remember, do the next thing. Isn't that just brilliant? Well, it's great writing. It is definitely great writing. I understand that as, like, personality is maybe active and ephemeral, but personage is, like, longer-lasting and more... Well, I think the the important part here is action provides clarity. That's what he's saying. And personality is not something that requires action it is just a state of being personage is an activity so what do you mean what do you make of it like this is what you can hang things on so as a personage as as opposed to a personality you are embracing life itself and what is the nature of life to grow Mm. right Mm -hmm. and and how does one grow one gathers resources whether that be sunlight and minerals for a plant or as a human it's love and affection i mean that is the the source of of our greatness as humans is is the pouring of love and affection into a into a being Mm -hmm. and attention attention is everything Mm -hmm. right fundamentally attention is the currency of the universe how do you create? We are Imago Dei. That's the, the great uh, story of faith, right? Is that, and what does Imago Dei mean? It means the image of God. And what is the image of God? We are creators. How could it be any other way? We create things. Mm. And the things that we create are, you and I are creating a conversation right now. Yeah. Fitzgerald created a book. Mm-hmm. My brother has created houses. And we act like this is the most natural thing in the world. And it's not even that interesting. And yet it's pure magic. And it's done very simply with attention. Mm -hmm. And what is love? It is focused attention. What is creation? It is focused attention. Mm -hmm. Why do they say pay attention? Why does social media want our attention so much? Because it's valuable. Because it literally is the foundation of value is attention. Now, personage versus person personality personage is a connection to reality it's pragmatic Mm. it's a realization that you need to gather things to grow Mm -hmm. personality is a kind of arrogance it's a pride right it's saying i am a thing well nobody is a thing you're all 
humming effect. It even has the it has a kind of a tonal relationship, at least in this context, with persona. Yes. Which is interesting, right? Because the thing I love so much about the quote, it was the becoming he dreamed of, never the being, is this. And it happened to me when I was in Ottawa. I got a job that I really wanted, and then I didn't realize that the job I really wanted was just going to be a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So it was the becoming I dreamed of. It was the prestige <laughs> of the position. It was the accolades. It was all of those other things I wanted, but I didn't want the responsibility because I was a boy. I was a Peter Pan. I didn't want responsibility. I wanted prestige. Why? Because I was insecure. Well, and and like, to be fair, I mean, yes, insecurity, but also our kind of mass media doesn't try to disabuse you of that illusion. Well, of course. It it perpetrates that illusion. Every song you hear, every movie you watch, everything of creation is a finished product, right? You don't get the hours and hours and hours of practice or creation or frustration of all the behind the scenes stuff, right? Like it's no accident that one of the earliest kind of stories of human life is the knowledge of good and evil. Well, that can also be in maturity, you gain the knowledge of display versus effort. (laughs) kind of thing right like there's probably better words for it but i think you know what i'm talking about i certainly suffered from that when i was younger in terms of specifically with music i wanted to be good at guitar i didn't want to why did you uh, want to practice being good at guitar well because of you know the social prestige that comes with you you wanted yeah yeah, (laughs) you wanted yeah you wanted the attention why and because attention of course yeah and and it honestly it's interesting I don't know, maybe this is a different conversation, but that was actually what got me motivated enough to play guitar. But once I started, I realized that I actually liked the nuts and bolts of it just as much as the um, display part of it, right? And the performance part of guitar has actually shifted in, 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 in what I emphasize of important to it. It used to be the kind of more egoistic, I'm doing this, Versus now, I really like, to the extent that I ever do play guitar for other people, I like opening a door to a more social environment where I'll play songs that people know and can dance to along with me kind of thing, right? Like it's more of an invitation versus a um, look at me-ism. <sighs> at least in my own mind, I don't know how other people <laughs> exactly view it. Maybe it's still in that former for other people. But so the idea would be that personage is that kind of maturity, I guess, of learning that it's... it's well, not- it's what you've taught me through this podcast, right? Is that the process is everything, that God is in the details but also the devil. So, okay. So in the, in the context of the book, this side of paradise, Amory gets told that, but he still can't learn that. Well, you can't see, this is the funny thing about being a human, right? Is that you can't learn anything in your head. You have to know it in your heart. And if you, because if you don't believe it, then you're not going to, if you don't believe something, you will not act as if it is true. Yeah. You just won't. It doesn't matter what you know, what you believe determines your life. So when the Cardinal is telling, giving this distinction, Amory says he believes it, but he actually doesn't. Would be of course not. What you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and like, what do you think in the book is the point where he does believe it? Or does he? It's near the end when he has the revelation in the vehicle. 
Right, where he's like, oh, it's not all about me. It's the same thing that David Foster was. That's the scene where he's talking to those two men. Yeah, and then and then afterwards he leaves the vehicle and he's by himself. Right, right. Okay, and he yeah. just he's just standing there and he's like so excited about the future because he realizes that it's not about him. So it, in a very obvious sense, it's a kind of <laughs> Fitzgerald's epiphany moment. Of his own. No, it's definitely it's his enlightenment moment. It's the same. It's the same story across all religions and all stories. It all is talking about exactly the same thing, and that is what it's talking about. Because Fitzgerald could not write this book, or certainly not The Great Gatsby, if he was still like Amory or like no, you Jack can't. You Gatsby, can't. Right? You can't. If it's about you, you can't write anything. He needs to actually get onto that side of paradise to be able to reflect on this side of paradise. You cannot be a creator <laughs> if you think you're God. You are only the conduit for God. That's that's the now, story. I wish I could remember exactly what it was talking to those two men. I, I don't remember either, but that's not. I didn't feel like that was that important. Well, they were talking about the like because in the in the car, you know, Amory's a socialist, and he's talking about the importance of socialism and he's getting these kind of and they kind of laugh at him and they're like because they're pragmatists yes they are pragmatists now i'm not pollyanna about pragmatism because the fact that it is an ism means it can be taken the whole point of pragmatism is to not take it too seriously yes (laughs) so that can happen in any endeavor and we've talked about that lots i like that that's a good distinction between personality and personage i mean i don't know like obviously the word personality has a lot of different senses if you're saying oh i really like her personality that's just i like being around them but like you know hitchens would say there's something in the human personality that wants this which is more like human nature right so it's like there's just different senses of the word so maybe in this sense the best in them is persona yeah i like that i think that's a really good distinction a that's kind of mask you put on in public life and even the most self-aware person kind of wears masks well, in social Well, T.S. Eliot has a wonderful line in the love song of Sir Alfred Prufrock, or sorry, in the love song of J. Al, or Alfred J. Prufrock. Anyway, yeah, I think it doesn't matter. Right. It's T.S. Eliot. Mm-hmm. And the line goes, there will be time, there will be time to prepare a face for the faces that you meet. Mm-hmm. Apropos of nothing, which is um, the title of my next podcast, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my buddy Stu from Korea introduced me to this great musician who you might have heard of by now because he's become a little famous over here, Frank Turner. He's a great... Yeah, I love Frank Turner. I love, he's got a song called Recovery, which is just one of my favorites. Yeah, exactly. Um, So he's got an earlier song in his catalog called I Knew Proof Rock Before He Was Famous. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, always, whenever I hear a reference to T.S. Eliot, I think of Frank Turner in that song. People, People act like knowing something... You and I understand this because of, of your mother and my mother giving us the Promethean flame, but knowing something and sharing it doesn't make it less valuable, right? A lot of okay. people think that, let's go into personality here for a moment versus okay. personhood. Personality is about creating an identity. And identity is the enemy because ego is the enemy. Mm-hmm. Because why is identity the enemy? And this is the oldest teaching of Buddhism, right? Buddhism teaches that you must empty yourself. Right? You must be, and why does it teach that? Because as long as you're clinging to some kind of idea of who you are, you're wrong. Well, it's also just from a psychological perspective, I think it imprisons you into a very inflexible worldview. Exactly. Well, and if anyone attacks your identity or, or an idea that you 
identify with, they're not attacking the idea. It can be one of the tributaries into your identity. They're not attacking the idea at that point for you on an emotional level. Yeah. Now they're attacking you because as a personality, you identify with an idea instead of a personage. And the personage, to be very clear, is simply the understanding that you are a evolving being mm -hmm. that is either growing or dying and that that is the natural cycle of things right the natural cycle of things is birth and death one of the things i think about in relation to personage is in how it's being used in this book is something that i'm on the fly calling the flywheel life where like everything you do is hopefully this is the goal to be a good in and of itself for the moment and set you up for a future good like improve yes. your odds of a future good well something you said in the past that uh really stuck with me is whenever you're playing chess every move needs to do two things yeah 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 that's a that's a good way to think of it i mean obviously maybe chess isn't the best metaphor because the best chess players are actually doing 17 things well, well, <laughs> so... at least two things at least you always yeah, yeah, said yeah, yeah, yeah. at, at least, least two, two things yeah but exactly. you, you can become better right well i mean like that's kind of a, a, a more personal for me would be reading books for me, reading books is a good in of itself because I enjoy narrative and I enjoy or nonfiction, like I enjoy learning things. But they also recur later if like that thing I read is useful in a trivia question that I'm doing with friends later, right? Or or um, maybe someone later on enjoys this particular author that we now actually have something to talk about because I've actually read that book. The heuristic I use for books specifically is, um, and I know this is probably not exactly anatomically correct, but every book I read, it's like building a spider web because every yeah. book you read adds another layer to the outside of your spider web. And once you build your spider web really large, you start catching flies at the outer edges of your spider web that you realize you wouldn't have caught if you hadn't built the web that long. That's a great analogy. I like that. And the flywheel element of that, because flywheels by the very nature are inherently productive over and over, is that you start to realize what are the flies I'm not catching because I haven't read the next book. I said this to my, my sister-in-law yesterday. I said, mm -hmm. nobody tells you how awesome life gets. We're all told, oh, you're old, your youth is gone. I tell you, I am so, <laughs> since starting this podcast, which funnily enough, we started when I was 30. Yeah. The nice thing about aging is that you realize uh, you think you peak too early, but the truth is you actually never climax. Well, exactly. There's no <laughs> peak. There's no peak. You're just climbing mountains. I said to uh, Dan, our, our cousin last night, we had like a three hour conversation and I said, he's like, there's going to be a lot of mountains to climb, but I'm excited about it. And I said, dude, mm -hmm. you're just looking at the mountains. You even haven't even got to the foothills yet. Yeah, totally. In maybe more modern slash more comprehensible to me language, I would classify the distinction between personality and personage as something like the distinction between persona and like trying to live a flywheel life. Right. Okay. That's a good distinction. I like that. I like that. So let's move on to um, some more of your thoughts on other characters in the book besides Amory. Well, okay. So I had a question about Amory's mom, Beatrice. Yes, Beatrice. She's like a Catholic, but only to the extent that she gets the attention of the priests. So I tongue in cheek made a joke. This is like literally bad faith. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> you and your puns. That is our grand grandmother. <laughs> similar. Okay. So again, apropos nothing, but similar to 
Christopher Hitchens once um, was asked by the Vatican. They have a, a department called the Devil's Advocate. So like yes. whenever they want to, uh, what is the term? Beatify a saint? A saint? So yeah, so there's yeah, beatification is the, the phase before sainthood. So when it was Mother Teresa's turn for beatification, they wanted a Devil's Advocate. Then it's like to Catholicism's credit, they ask for the other side of the the Devil's Advocate, right? And so his his joke was um and he did it for free so he thinks he's the first ever devil's advocate to uh do it pro bono <laughs> <laughs> I, love, go. I love these stupid little jokes oh it's so good so good that was the thing about beatrice i noticed was this like that's a great one okay let's move on to another character Honestly, I thought a lot of the other characters in the book kind of blended together. And maybe it's because all the different women in the book were important to Amber. Let's go through the women in the book. I think that's important. I I hope I can remember all their names. I don't, I know there's Eleanor, Rosalind, but I don't remember the other two's names. There's Isabel, Rosalind, Eleanor, Beatrice, Clara is his cousin. But the important ones, I think, are Isabel... Rosalind and Eleanor. Yeah, okay, those three. Well, I hope you have a better memory of them because they were kind of underwhelming to me, if I'm honest. Well, I think, okay, so it's important because it's a progression, right? So Isabel is the first love and we have all been there, right? Like I have a a psychotherapist that I talk to a lot and uh, I was talking about like past rejection and how it made me feel. And he literally said, David, every single man has had their heart broken. Pretty much like it's almost a universal constant, whether you dated the person or you were just in love with them, it doesn't matter. Right. And that's what I love about this book is like, he's so in love that reality shifts. Just as a by the by, that's one of the weird and maybe insidious things about dating apps is that it does take the sting out of rejection. Oh, it's one of the horrible things about dating apps. There's that sting of rejection is, is, is important because it teaches you things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. So that's Isabel, first love, and it shifts the, the narrative. It's so important that he, he's like, pay attention to this, and he shifts the narrative. Right. And then he shifts it back. And then, of course, we have Rosalind. Mm-hmm. She's interesting, but she's cruel, right? She's so unkind. I remember her as being, like, intelligent and good conversationalist, but... She's uncaring. She doesn't. She doesn't care about Emery at all. She's not loving. She's not kind. No, and and she's she's treating men in a way to just get her next enjoyment fix. She's treating men as a dopamine, a path to dopamine. Mm. A lot of people do that, right? A lot of people treat women as a path to dopamine too. Well, Emery, Emery just... is like he says he loves Rosalind. Emery doesn't actually know to the extent of what that would mean. Right, like he's using words. No, not he's, at all. Using... he's not. He's not self-aware at all. So how could he? He's using okay. words whose content he can't quite ascertain. Yeah, he's chasing his own tail when he uses these terms like "I love you," "I want to be with you," "I want to marry you," because he doesn't take seriously what that would mean because he doesn't know how to, but he thinks he does because he's destined for this greatness. Whereas Rosalind is, I guess we could say she's kind of she's just cynical, right? She's cynical. oh, well, she's been hurt. She's cynical about the nature of human relationships and well, so, so many men are interested in her right like it's just that she doesn't she's get it's it's what happens to people when they get too much attention 
And I think there is some I think there is some psychological literature on cynicism that can accrue in the minds of we might say alphas in life, male or female, because for alpha males, the ease with which they might have intimacy with many women, it lowers their esteem for women, for one thing. And they don't necessarily look until they reach a point of you know, overcoming their alphaness, let's say, or becoming more socially integrated and and so uh, emotionally integrated into into human life, because they don't individualize women for a long, no. long time, right? Like they yeah. don't. To them, women is just the abstract category of people for it's easy for whom they can sleep with. Yes. Well, it's it's a dopamine. They're literally dopamine chasers. I, I mean that when I say it. Yeah, and I certainly don't want to like demonize merely alphas because there's definitely a resentment. Uh, available in, let's say, beta type males who are not integrated well themselves or not well adjusted themselves. And that's like the incel kind of uh, world. Yes. Whereas the alphas are cynical, the betas are resentful. Bitter. Yeah. And, bitter. Bitter. and I, I wouldn't know as much about this from the female perspective, but I have to imagine that, let's say, extremely attractive, physically attractive women get a little cynical about the intentions of all the males if they're straight all the males that are giving them attention of course how could you not because because they don't want to be used and that is actually to connect it to something we just talked about that's an extension of personality versus personage in this right exactly like the most substantial relationships i've ever had with women in my life were when the woman started to appreciate in this vocabulary appreciated my personage not my persona that kind of thing like those are the best friendships too yeah you start to see behind the curtain of like what this person is like um when they're not you know in the shakespearean sense on stage for us right now doing their part i get this all the time when i i just did an episode on the liberal soul about ultimate frisbee with a couple people yeah. sometimes i watch people practice ultimate frisbee when they're like not putting on a show for me they're just doing something that has nothing to do with me and i see that's when you start to see that kind of flywheel life thing that I was talking about earlier. It's like, oh, this is something this person does if left to their own devices. There's no persona attached to this to try and impress me to the extent that anyone would ever want to do that. <laughs> if you want to know who someone is, what do they do when they're alone? Yeah, that's some classic definition of morality, what you do when no one's looking. Whereas Rosalind, maybe she doesn't think about it like this and she probably wouldn't articulate it, but like she just doesn't believe that there is such a thing as personage then in Fitzgerald's vocabulary of it right it's all personality all the way down and the only way to deal with that is to be wise to the world and cynical about it because yeah. that's the only way you're not going to get hurt because everyone lets you down in the end kind of thing exactly uh so then we have Eleanor who's my favorite and I gotta find the quote this is just a great quote but Amory wondered how people could fail to notice that he was a boy marked for glory and when faces of the throng turned toward him and ambiguous eyes stared into his, he assumed the most romantic of expressions and walked on the air cushion that lie on the asphalts of 14. Mm. Eleanor was just, my memory of her, I didn't actually make a note about her, but my memory of her is that she represented uh, sp spontaneity. I remember it, it just came to me. So this is Fitzgerald's description of Eleanor? This is a description of what happens. They slipped briskly into an intimacy from which they never recovered. Again, she to me reminded me of spontaneity. The yes. kind of person who like, 
yeah, let's go do this. Let's go do that. The joy of, as we say, thrown for a loop, I would say thrown out of your loop. That's what I say about good, a good joke or good art throws you out of your loop. It actually puts a blockade in your unconscious stream of consciousness that you're just accustomed to because you have to like pay attention to this new thing. And that's why jokes are so great because they're pretty rational. They throw you out of your loop. You laugh and then you're like, oh my gosh, should I have laughed at that? Yeah. 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 Metaphorically, you could say that part of your being realizes the truth in something before the other part of your being says to censor that realization of that truth. (laughs) So only two other points that I think are worth mentioning and and interesting and um, were were funny. (laughs) Later in the book, so this is like 1920, this book is published. So it's like set around this time. It was illegal to have an affair, I guess, or like yes. <laughs> uh, the paper prints the fact. It wasn't even Amory who was doing this. He kind of like fell on the sword for a friend, I think. But the paper prints the fact that he was found in a hotel room with a woman who wasn't his wife. Yes. You know? It's funny to come across these kind of anachronisms in books or like things that are different in the past than now. Because obviously this is like around prohibition time. So this is obviously like... No, I don't know should you be sleeping with a woman who's not your wife like if, if you're married well okay that's that's a separate question i would say i don't, I don't think it's i think it's the same question no because the question is should it be illegal and should oh well of course i mean you know my thoughts on the government and should the and should the paper be snooping around like this to print it <laughs> right? and of course the answer to that is no in a sense <laughs> but in a deeper sense it's how will you live yeah but i don't like amory's not even married no, no, but Amber, but that isn't that isn't the interesting point of this. He's covering for a friend who is married. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But then there's okay. Well, there's a couple different questions here. Then, like, should his friend have been having an affair? No, I would no. say not. It's a little bit complicated by the fact that social mores are different then. But it's like it would have. It probably would have been harder to talk about. Social mores are not morality. Though. No, I know, but I don't know what the laws of divorce are in 1920. You know, that doesn't the matter. States. What's right? And what's wrong? Well, probably what's right is that maybe if the guy wants to have an affair, he should tell his wife that he wants to have an affair with somebody else. Because yeah. there's obviously deeper... There's a like, communication problem. There's, there's underlying issues. at, at Oh, Amory. huge issues. But as far as Amory's concerned, like I just think... I don't think it's healthy for a society to sensationalize gossip of the life of other people for our entertainment. That's basically where we live. I know, I know. It's the beginnings of what... And I mean, it's not the beginnings. I know that this kind of shit went on way earlier than this too. But like, it feels like it's tabloid it feels paparazzi-esque i got a kick out of it because it's like this is a different podcast but i'm like who fucking cares this is not my business newspaper why are you making it in front of my eyes exactly (laughs) right this is not news this is not my business you are miscategorizing this particular thing and you're doing it cynically for profit right you're not you don't the newspaper doesn't give a shit about this wife who's getting cheated on by amory's friend it's just purely for their own gain and to the extent that the government's involved it's just politicians putting their finger in the wind to determine what sort of encroachment on public life might get them the more activist votes or what we would say now their base going yeah yeah so like those two sides of it i was distasteful of as i am now Yeah. And you have one more point that you wanted to make. So I want to make sure you have time to make that. Just that line at the end of the book, it's not having the innocence he wanted, but the ability to lose it again. Ah, I love that line. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. I wanted to know what you thought about that. I mean, that's the evil 
right, is, is to want to lose your innocence. You must become like a child. You must be born again. The, the stories, whether it's Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, it's all the same, right, is that innocence is important. Purity is important. Goodness is important. That's what all these things are saying. And that's the funny part. That's the corruption of Amory is that he just wants the pleasure of sin. Now, does sin exist? You don't believe that? I do. It doesn't matter. The truth of it is that if you corrupt your soul, if you align yourself with a lie, they're all the same things. There's not some sacred knowledge that's different. It's all talking about the same thing, which is this, that if you corrupt yourself, you will die. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I believe people believe there is sin. Well, that's all that's really important from your perspective, yeah. You know, I could nerdify this quite a bit by saying I think sin is a basket term for a compilation of much of human behavior that over time seems less social than more social. That doesn't make it less important. I just think that I have a different description of where it comes from. Well, the word sin means missing the mark. Yeah. Again, like with my velocity point, pragmatism needs a direction as well. You got to have a mark. Yeah, exactly. I would say religions and ideologies leave the path of desirability when they start taking these words more seriously than they should be taken. No, it's just the difference between religion and faith, right? A religious person is all about the rules. They're all about following something. They're all about being right. Faith has nothing to do with being right at all. All faith is, is belief. In goodness. Now, it's interesting that Fitzgerald uses the word innocence there because, yes, in the one sense of like wanting to be able to become debauched again, that's quite negative. But also, I wonder if there's a double entendre here going on where losing your innocence is that moment you've eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Which is like when you've become, if you take away the religious overtones of it, it's kind of like when you become an adult. Right. It's, it's when you start to learn more about the world that is actually kind of necessary to learn about to be able to choose good versus evil. My interpretation of the Garden of Eden story is very much that like Adam and Eve are basically children. And then when they eat tree of knowledge, good and evil, they're adults. Like I think it's a metaphor from the transition of childhood to adulthood where adults have to be more aware of the dangers in the world so that they don't become victims of them in a way that children will be. Yeah. The shadow side of innocence is naivete. I mean, I don't know if Fitzgerald meant it this way, but I think it's interesting to interpret it of like, the negative side is you lose your innocence. You want to just become able to be debauched at will again because you know of the darkness of the world. Whereas the more positive side would be, I want to be able to have that feeling of knowing that my naivete can be a liability and I need to guard myself against the negative things in the world that might try to get me if I'm not more savvy to them. I like that. Just maybe as a nice little cherry on top of this, because you talked a little bit about glory and we've talked about how like a lot of these things aren't new under, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. So there's a song by the band Brand New called Sick Transit Gloria or Seek Transit yes, Gloria, yes, Glory Fades, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is like maybe a, a meditation for Amory. I wonder if uh, the band read that book and it's from the album Deja Untondu, which means everything again. So. Well, and uh, there's a line in Proof Rock that says, I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker. Yeah. And in short, I was afraid. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, these these themes recur in culture throughout different eras. So, yeah, I mean, I liked this book, but I see why you picked it. 
I would say. More I love this book. Yeah. yeah. That's why I picked it. Nice to chat with you again, David. Thanks everyone again for listening. You can find us on all the podcasting apps of your choice. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And may the force be with you. And also with you.